Okay, we are wired and ready to go. So tonight's a big deal. Uh, I think you guys are going to either vote us in or vote us out. Brad told me I'm, he's pretty sure I'm in, but he's not sure about Karen. Um, so, who said that? <laughs> you know what? That was always true in Milan, too. They were ready for me to leave before they were ready for her to leave. So, one of those weird things happened this week as a preacher. I don't know how weird it is for Brad. It's a little unusual for me. Um, I was set to preach Psalm 51, the indispensable prayer. Who knows what that is? Who knows what Psalm 51 is about? It's the indispensable prayer where David confesses. And praise God, Psalm 51 is in Scripture. Amen? We all need that, right? We've we got to have it. It's indispensable. But he pushed me off onto Psalm 40. I don't really understand it. Um, in Psalm 40, we'll be looking at some, some of the points we've been talking about in Psalm 13 and Psalm 42. So either you or I or both of us need some more, shall we say, review of, of these kinds of psalms. Uh, there's some common elements here in these three psalms, but there's some, some new angles, shall we say, in Psalm 40. You know, we saw in Psalm 13, David working through his impatience with God, God's seeming inaction. But we, we made the point, God is never sitting idly by. God is doing a thing, particularly in his people's lives. He has always got his hands on the clay. Last week in Psalm 42, David showed us the ultimate aim of prayer. Remember? Anybody remember the ultimate aim of prayer? Is the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. If that's as far as you get in your prayer time, that's a home run. And I love the big God songs. Thank you. Yahweh, Yahweh, right? Amen? I appreciate the music. It's well done. So, we don't always know what Yahweh's going to do. But we know one thing, it'll look like Romans 8.28 and 8.29. It will be for our good, and He will bring us into conformity with Jesus Christ. So not to worry, I'm going to make it all the way through the psalm in the allotted time. I'm going to park on the first three verses, as Joe mentioned, for a good little bit, but we will, we will finish on time. So you heard the verse read. David says in Psalm 40, verse 1, I have waited patiently for the Lord. So what's implied here? Much time has passed. Have you ever been impatient with God? You know, we saw this in Psalm 13, didn't we? Four times David said, How long, O Lord? How long? How long? How long, O Lord? Connoting some impatience with the Lord. Much time has passed. I was going to ask you to define the word time for me. Have you ever tried to define the word time? It's really difficult. It's one of those words we intuitively know and understand and use every day, but to define it is a whole different thing. So I looked it up for your benefit and mine. This is what Joe had. Probably this is what you thought, Joe. A non-spatial continuum in, in which events occur in apparently irre irreversible succession. Is that what you had? That's exactly what he had. 
a non-spatial continuum in which events occur in apparently irreversible su succession. So I'm going to ask you as we begin, how are you managing your non-spatial continuum? How much of your non-spatial continuum is God getting in your daily life? How much? How much time have you set aside for Yahweh? I saw a TV documentary some years ago, and it said there was one item that radically changed modern society during the Industrial Revolution. When I first heard it, I thought, that can't be right. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it was right. Who, who knows what it is? Anybody? You want to take a guess? The wristwatch. Suddenly, we knew what time it was, we knew how late we were, and we knew how much time we'd lost. Suddenly, we knew all these things. And the pace of life, as you can guess, radically accelerated. Fast food, drive-through banking, internet shopping, fast cars, superhighways, bullet trains, jet planes, instantaneous communication. We want it, and we want it now. I was talking to a businessman this last week. And he was saying, I hate to wait 30 seconds for the car wash, for the guy in front of me to clear. And I'm thinking, 30 seconds? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we want it, we want it now, we want it fast. It's sad though, isn't it? We only have so much time for God, it seems. How does God say it? Psalm 46.10 Hurry up and know that I am God. Is that how He says it? What does He say? You know the text. He says, what? Cease striving or be still and know I am God. It's the only way you can know deep in your soul is to sit in front of Him and be still, be in the Word, cry out to Him in prayer, spend time with Him. That's how you know. Know that I am God. God says, stop treating me like everything else in your life. Like you're in a hurry. Stop treating me that way, God says. Beloved, we can't come to God <clears throat> who is, as we know Scripture tells us, from everlasting to everlasting, the ancient of days, you don't get to rush him. He's not on your schedule. Can I say something lovingly? He doesn't care about your schedule. He is on his schedule. Remember how Peter says it? This is the God for whom a thousand years is as one day. He's not on your schedule. He could not be less interested in your schedule. He has his own. So if you want to truly know God, you've got to invest some of your non-spatial continuum. The I want it fast and I want it now mindset does not work with the alpha and the omega. So I'll ask you again, how much time are you giving to know and love and worship and praise God on a daily basis? How much time? I know you're busy. Everybody's busy. We're all busy, I guess. We all say we're busy. Are you too busy? Let me, let, me, let me try to understand this. Are you too busy for the one who thought you up? Are you too busy for the one who designed you, who created you, who sustains you, 
who atone for your sins so you don't spend eternity in hell. You're too busy for him? Really? You know, I, I've been a pastor for a while. I hear things like this. Sometimes people just say utterly ridiculous things. I'm too busy. Well, <clears throat> God knows how to make us still, doesn't He? If you've been in the church very long, if you've visited very many people in the hospital, you've probably heard this more than once. God knows how to make us still that we might know Him. Which is the ultimate pursuit of any, what, true believer. That is the ultimate pursuit. If we're truly His, God will teach us about Himself. And sometimes that's in the pit. You heard Joe read the text. David's in a pit. You've been in a pit. Some of you may be in a pit in a metaphorical sense. When I read the first few verses there, immediately an Old Testament character came to mind. Who was in a pit? Who was in a literal pit? There were several guys, I think, but one really came to my mind. Anybody? Can you think of any? Joseph. Joseph is the one I thought of. Joseph was in a literal pit. I presume you know the story just briefly. Joseph was the son of his father's old age. He was the favorite, and all of his brothers knew it, and they hated him for it. They saw an opportunity to get rid of him. They thought that they would kill him, and was it, uh, yeah, Reuben resisted. They, Reuben had him thrown into a pit, and uh, Judah had a good idea. Why kill the kid? Why kill him? Let's sell him off, right? Let's sell him off. Let's make some money. So they pulled him out of the pit and put him into a new pit, metaphorical pit, of slavery, right? And then we know, the, as the story continues, he ends up um, in another pit, being unjustly accused and put in prison. So, couldn't help but think of Joseph in the pit. Does anyone know how long this lasted for Joseph? Does anyone know how long he was in these three trials, shall we say? How long he was in this chain of pits? Anybody know? 20. That's a good guess. Huh? Over 10. Over 10. 13 years. 13 years. And some of you lose patience with God after what? Let me throw myself in there. Some, some of us lose patience with God after how long? I've got to tell you a story. There was a young man from the UK over in Milan some years ago. And he came to me. He was very exercised because he had this huge problem. And God was not performing. God wasn't showing up. And I asked this young Englishman, I said, do you know Joseph's story? Do you know about this? He said, yeah, I do. I said, well, how long was Joseph in the pit? How long was he in the trial? He said, I don't know. I said, go read it. Come back, we'll talk. So he comes back. I said, well, how long? 13 years. 
Well, how long have you been wrestling with God about your problem? 90 days! It's just embarrassing. It is just embarrassing. The way we talk and act sometimes. We have a complete, utter lack of humility and the deep sense that God may actually know better than me. I was able to humble that young man <laughs> as uh, I've had elders humble me in the past. He knew he was in error. Beloved, 13 years is nothing for the ancient of days. It is nothing. Don't be a whiner. Don't be a whiner. I don't know how long your trial will last. I don't know how long you'll be in the pit, but this is what I do know. If you know Jesus Christ, He's going to bring you out. He's going to bring you out. So, do me a favor. This should be the title of the sermon. Don't be a whiner! Don't be one! God hates it! It doesn't honor Him! You don't need to do it! He's already made the promise to you. He's with you. He is with you. God is not concerned how much of your non-spatial continuum He will use to bring you into conformity with the Son. This is something we've talked about the last few weeks. This is God's ultimate pursuit in your life, that you would look like Jesus Christ. It is what He is doing If it takes 13 years, so be it. If it takes 20 years, so be it. If it takes 40, so be it. If it's on my deathbed, so be it. He knows best. We've talked about this in this, 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 the last three weeks or so. You, you have to really want God's perfect will, whatever it looks like. And if you're in the pit, it's God's will. You don't get to name and claim it out. You don't get to name yourself however they say it. You don't get to name and claim yourself out of that pit. God will bring you out in His timing. This is the assurances we have from God. As I've noted the last several weeks, I'm going to say it again, God will not be distracted with your temporal comfort, ease, or happiness. Or shall we say your timetable. He doesn't care about your schedule. He cares about you. And He's going to change you, right? So let's read the text again. Verses, verse, first three verses. <clears throat> and my pages keep blowing. It's a good thing I'm an astute preacher. Or I'd be reading the wrong psalm. Here we go. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard me. Okay, some of us are already out because we're not patient with God. We don't expect Him to incline in a real sense. But David says, I wait patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock making my footsteps firm, and I love this, and he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Now, many of you understand that this is almost, a, this is like a picture of conversion here. It's like a picture of conversion, right? Bringing us out of that spiritual pit. There's no question that David may be alluding to that to some degree. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this text. It kind of gives the ambiance of what David is communicating. He says, I waited and I waited and I waited for God. It's a good thing to wait for God. It's a good thing to wait for God. Don't bemoan the fact that you have to wait for God. It's a good thing. As one Hebrew scholar, and I love this, I preached this one time in Milan, and this was the title of the sermon. One Hebrew scholar renders the Hebrew like this. I have diligently expected Yahweh. <laughs> Don't you love that? It's not just, I'm waiting and waiting. It's I diligently expect God to show up. I know He'll show up. He always shows up. Not on my time schedule, but on His. I diligently expect Yahweh. Now listen, that should permeate your prayers, beloved. That should permeate your prayers. I love that. I have diligently expected Yahweh. We saw it last week. I think I mentioned it to you. Charles Spurgeon's great comment on Psalm 42, calling David a victor by how? Anybody remember? A victor by what? Anybody remember? A victor by anticipation. He hadn't been delivered yet, but he could taste it. He could taste it. Got to love it. We hear the same thing in Psalm 40. But it's not simply about waiting, is it? It's about expecting. <laughs> right? This is how we pray. We expect Jehovah to do whatever He pleases. He'll do whatever He pleases. Whenever He pleases, however He pleases. Uh, if I preach much around here, you'll get to hear that mantra a lot. It's not about waiting merely. It's about, ultimately, about expecting. David says, I'm expecting, verse 1, for God to incline to me and hear me. Verse 2, he says, I'm expecting God to bring me out of the pit and set my feet upon a rock. Verse 3, he says, I'm expecting God to put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. I'm expecting it. It's not woe is me. I expect this. I'm not coming before God whining and wringing my hands. I'm expecting to hear from Yahweh. Again, I don't know when and I don't know exactly what He's going to do. That doesn't really matter. He'll do His perfect will and that's exactly what I want. Man, it's, i got to say it again. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. It's like cheating. To be in relationship with the God of the universe, it's like cheating. 
I love this. David says, God has put a new song in my mouth. There's a new song in the pit. <laughs> okay? This is how good our God is. He teaches us a new song in the pit. It's not about the pit. It's about God in the new song. But all we can do many, many times is look at the, we look at the problem. We just look at it. We dwell on it. We wring our hands. We whine about it. That's all we can do. Listen, I know most of you in here have attained a certain age and you've gone through hard stuff. I've gone through hard stuff. I get that. But you know what? You can just throw the good stuff. You can throw the hard stuff off. Give it to God. And be expecting a favorable answer from the omnipotent one. So in the pit, David worships God in a brand new way. He's, he's learned a new song. You know, you see this sometimes in Christendom. You see, and I've seen it. I've seen family members do it, and you probably have seen even pastors do it. Sometimes people just walk away. You know, they, they just walk away from Christianity. They just walk away. God's not performing adequately. God's not doing what I think He ought to do. I'm going to go with the crowd. It's much easier. But the real Christian is expecting a new song. <laughs> I'm expecting a new song. That's what I'm expecting. I love that. I think I've said it to you already in this series, but you don't have a tear to spare. If you're weeping, you don't have a tear to spare. God is in it. And you look what David says there. Look what he says is that verse. My page blew again. I've got to bring me a rock up here. Look at verse bottom of verse 3 there, the end of verse 3. Because this is happening in David's life, because he's learned a new song, it's in his mouth, he's singing praise to God, what, what will happen? What will happen? Many will see and fear, right? And will trust in the Lord. What's the pit about? <laughs> it's also about evangelism. It's also about evangelism. It's advanced evangelism in the pit. In the trial, in the illness, in the heartache, in the betrayal, God is not only changing you, He's changing those around you. Many will see and fear because of my new song. And they will trust the Lord. Right? This is about evangelism, man. This is your best evangelism. On your hardest day, praising God with unshakable expectancy, right? And people, people watch Christians do this and they go, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? I saw this with Karen. She just, she had hard times. But on balance, she just kind of walked through the cancer. And people still now today talk to me about that. Okay? That was like 14 years ago. 
And I'll talk to somebody that was there at that time in Milan, and they'll say, hey, I just, hey, just how's Karen, man? I remember that. And I remember how she walked through it. Listen, people won't forget if you're going through something hard and you've got a new song in your mouth. They won't forget it. They may not believe it. They may not be converted, but they won't forget it. It's advanced evangelism, beloved. Shall we say pure evangelism? Don't waste your cancer, whatever the problem is. You know, people should be asking, as you know, Peter says, <clears throat> people should be asking you about the hope that's within you. When you're in the pit, you ought to get that question. What's wrong with you? You know, we're a peculiar people, right? We are peculiar people. It's what Joseph did. Remember when Potiphar's wife came after him? And you know how it is. You're in the pit, and you start to rationalize. You start to feel sorry for yourself. Well, why not? Why not engage in illicit sexual activity? Why not? Life's not being fair to me. You remember what he said? You can't ever forget this. Joseph said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? He's in the pit, but his mind and his heart is on God. It's not woe is me. It's about God and how he's going to navigate the pit. You remember Joseph in prison. He interprets the dreams. Who took credit for that? He took no credit. Who did he credit? God. He's in the middle of the pit, unjustly imprisoned for something he didn't do. <clears throat> Most of us would be whining about it. He's glorifying God in it. Advanced evangelism in prison. This is why David says, many will see and fear and trust the Lord. Beloved, we've already talked about this in the last couple of messages. The pit's not about the pit. The trial's not about the trial. The storm's not about the storm. It's all about God, and He expects you to walk through it with unshakable expectancy. This is the way he expects his adopted children to live. We're supposed to know he's doing something I cannot begin to understand. That's just your default place to go, right? When it's hard and you don't understand, we understand Christianity is not about understanding. It's not about that. It's about trusting. It's always about trusting that's what it's about. Verses 4 and 5. These things I remember. <clears throat> Got to get me a rock. Here we go. All right, maybe that'll work. Verse 4, Psalm 40. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. There it is. And has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. 
If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. We understand blessed in the Bible. One, one, one meaning is happy. Happy is that guy. He may be in the pit, but he's happy. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Some of the things we've been talking about the last few weeks. And I said this to you last week off that Jeremiah passage uh, in Lamentations that Jeremiah wrote. We need to get to the place where circumstance does not dictate our view of God, but that our view of God dictates our view of our circumstances. Yes, I'm in the pit. My God is competent. Don't you love that? I love to talk about him like this. This may be original, probably not. I'm the only one I ever heard say it, but I probably read it somewhere. He's a competent God. And I got to tell you, I've run into a lot of professed Christians who actually don't believe that he's competent when it gets really hard. They really don't believe it. They don't believe he'll show up. They don't believe he's a rewarder. They really don't. Or their countenance would show it, right? Their countenance would show it. David says, I have diligently expected Yahweh. He's a competent God. He is an invincible promise keeper. We talked last week that God loves us too much to let us settle for mere temporal happiness. And listen, if that's as big as it gets for you, I just challenge you to go home and repent. If you're principally focused on your temporal happiness, I say go home and repent. I say you have work to do. It cannot be about that. It cannot be about that. God is going to teach you Himself. And that's going to take, sometimes in the pit, it's going to take a little bit of your non-spatial continuum. It's what we heard Spurgeon say, pardon me, C.S. Lewis say last week. It's part of that stern and splendid love of God. So let's have some perspective, right? It's hard right now, but let's have perspective. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Let's have some perspective. I've got a problem right now. It's real, it's tangible, it hurts. I can't cry anymore. But oh, guess what? Your major problem has been handled. You will not go to hell. You will not go to hell. Which you deserve and I deserve. We're not going there. Let's have some perspective. Your biggest problem, the problem you could never solve, has been solved. So let's get some perspective. We don't, need to be, we don't need to be wringing our hands. We don't need to be whiners. God's blown up our biggest problem. He blew it up on the cross. It's over. It's done. He did all that is required. David says, verse 4 there, he does not trust in the wisdom of the world. He's not, he's not one of the proud. He's not, he's not involved in falsehood. 
Then he talks about there in verse 5, he talks about the, the wonders of God, you know, the wonders of creation. And I know that Brad has taught you well on that. And then David goes to this breathtaking place. Okay, you, you know, sometimes the, the Word of God should just take your breath away or you're not really thinking about it. David says, your thoughts toward us, and he's talking about the wonders of creation, but he also includes the thoughts that God has toward us. They are too numerous to count. So how many thoughts does God have about each one of his elect? And how long has God had those thoughts? Forever, well, let's just say it this way, eternity past, you've always been on his mind. Now, maybe, the, maybe this doesn't affect you, this affects me. When I think deeply about this, I've never not been on God's mind. David says, your thoughts toward us, they are too numerous to count. Did I say breathtaking? I think I did. I'll just give you one verse. You know it. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with some spiritual blessing. Oh, is that right? How does it go? Everyone! Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everyone! Beloved, let's get some perspective. Let's get some perspective. I'll continue with the Ephesians passage. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, something we could never do. He's done it. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Can I say this? And I know you know it. You guys are theologically sound here. God's not leaving anything to chance regarding His elect. He's not leaving anything to chance. If it's in your life, it's His will. Verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened kind of an allusion to being born again there. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. He's, he's saying here, it's not about religion. It's not about being a Baptist. It's not about showing up for church every Sunday. That's not ultimately what it's about. It's about the fact that I delight in God. Verse 8, I delight to do your will. Do you delight to do God's will? This is born again Christianity. It's not I'm a Baptist. It's not I got baptized. It's not I prayed the prayer. I delight in God. That's what it's about. My ears have been opened. You open them. You open them. I hear 
awesome things. I read it in the Bible. <laughs> All these things you've promised me. Perspective, beloved. Perspective. I still remember as a recently converted man at 28, I, never, I remember bumping into or crashing into Amos 5 where God says, I hate what you do in the temple. That's shorthand. I hate it. Shut it down. I hate it. I hate what you do. That's Amos 5, 21 to 23 between the lines. Don't come to me with brain-dead, heart-dead religion. Don't come to me with some sacrifice that means nothing. Don't come to me like that. You remember what he said to the Pharisees, the most religious men who ever walked the planet. <laughs> he called them sons of hell. So I just want to make sure that we don't have any misunderstanding here. It's part of what I think David is saying, I, I used to tell my folks in Milan, of course they knew I was a little bit out there, so, but I would lovingly say to them, because we always had guests, we always had guests, international church, it's very fluid, it's just always turning over, people are coming and going, it's, you, you know, you don't know a third of the people who just walked in, um, but I would say this to them, in love, that it is neither good nor safe to play games with Yahweh. And if you think you can play religion with Yahweh, you have made a grievous mistake. And I used to say this to them, don't come in here if that's where you are. Now, if you're honestly say, I don't know, I don't know God, Jim, but I'm seeking God. Come, come, come. But if you're here playing a game, it's not good or safe for you. God hates it. It's an offense to God. It's an affront to God. Again, Psalm 40, verse 8, it's about delight and it is about the heart. And here's the deal. You can't fake this stuff. You can't fake the real thing, right? You can't fake it. You either love Jesus Christ or you don't. You either treasure and adore Him and delight in Him or you don't. He's either your ultimate delight or He's not. <clears throat> I could go off on denominationalism, but I won't. I was raised a Baptist. I was educated a Baptist. There's a lot of things about the Baptist church I love. But you know what? The one I grew up in, I had to un unlearn a bunch of stuff. You know... It's not about what the denomination says. It's about this. It's about this. It's always about this. It's always about that. Verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. It's one reason I love the psalm so much. These guys are always doing it. They're always proclaiming it, right? Just like you. 
right? Just like you. That's what you do. You proclaim it, whether you're in the congregation or out in the world, you proclaim it. It's just on your tongue. It's not only in your life, it's on your tongue. We proclaim the glad tidings of this magnificent Savior. And I love what David says here. That last phrase there in verse 9. Oh Lord, you know I've not hidden one thing about you. You know I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. You know I've not concealed your loving kindness and truth. You know. <laughs> you know. You know that I loved you and it's been on my mouth and it's been in my life. You know. You know. For David, it's public knowledge that he loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's public knowledge. Everybody in his circle knows it. They all know it. Is that how it is with you? In Jesus, verses 11 and 12. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. <clears throat> there in verse 12, he's echoing what Moses writes in the psalm he wrote. It is believed that Psalm 90 is written by Moses. Moses makes the point in Psalm 90 verse 8 that God is aware of our iniquities and secret sin. This is one, one thing God is, pardon me, David is referencing here. He says, my iniquity, verse 12, my iniquities have overtaken me they are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And my heart has failed. What is this? Well, it's kind of like Psalm 51 that we didn't preach this morning. It's confession. The indispensable prayer. I have to confess my sin. Right? I need to confess my sin. There, there in verse 11, God's compassion will not be withheld from those who love Him. His loving kindness and truth will always hold us, preserving us forever. David writes in Psalm 103, 10 through 13, you guys know it, famous text. God has not dealt with us according to our sin. Amen nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from Him. And wait a minute, you got a, you got a temporal problem and that's all you can see? That's all you can think about? That's all you can talk about? You're wearing out your spouse? You're wearing out your kids? You're wearing out your neighbors? You're wearing out your friends at church? That's all you can talk about? Why don't we talk about this? As far as the east is from the west. Let's talk about that. 
Let's talk about that. Verses 13 to 15. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. <laughs> he's praying. Okay, he's praying God's promises right here. He knows God's going to deliver him. He's praying his promises. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Then he prays about, the, about his enemies. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Some of you didn't know aha, aha was in the Bible, did you? Aha. You have people in your life who say aha. Where's your God? Ah. Aha. I love, he's praying what God has promised. And God delights in the prayers of his people. You guys know Proverbs 15 8. The prayer of the upright is my delight, he says. Of course, David's enemies, they are God's enemies. We're just to leave them with Him, right? It's the subtitle of my book. Wrath, Vengeance, Recompense, and Terror. We're to love them, to pray for them, and as, is it Peter? I think it's one of Peter's letters, to offer a blessing. But ultimately, we leave them with God. If they persist in being God's enemy, we leave them with God. God knows what to do. We don't have to take vengeance. That's not our job. We don't do that. We don't mistreat them. This is God's business. Verse 16. Those who seek the Lord. Verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Okay, I was talking to a pastor in the community this week, and that's how I signed off with him. I said, that's what it, it's about at Grace Baptist Church. Make Jesus Christ be magnified. That's really what we're into. That's who we are. May He be magnified. May He be magnified. Let us rejoice and be glad. How, why are we glad? What does the text say? What does your text say? Glad what? Glad what? Glad what? In God. Oh, I got my bonus. I'm glad. Things worked out well. With my family problem, I'm glad. That's good. But our ultimate gladness is God. It's not relief in the trial. It's just God. It's who God is. And it's who God is to me. And it's what He means to me. What does it mean that the Lord be magnified? What does it mean? That his fame may grow. May his fame grow 
and Scott because of you and because of Grace Baptist Church. Verse 17. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. Okay, you got to love this. Of course he's mindful. Of course he's mindful. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God, David's in the pit. He's praying the promises of God. He just keeps doing this. It's what the psalmists do. Be mindful of me, he says. I know he's mindful of me. He cannot not be mindful of me. He's omniscient. Makes me think back to verse 5. God's thoughts toward us are too numerous to count. <clears throat> David implores God not to delay in his deliverance. One theologian said it like this. God sets a limit on our sorrows. <laughs> There's always a limit. You're in a hard place. There's a limit. It's been foreordained. It will end when it ends. It won't end till it ends. It will end when it ends. When Yahweh has decreed that it will and so back to Joseph as we close. He spent 13 continuous years in one pit or another. God was doing, he was doing something that Joseph could not begin to fathom. He was preparing him to be vice president of Egypt. <laughs> Isn't it an astonishing story? <laughs> He's bringing Joseph into the pit and ultimately through the pit. If you want to Review that, that account. It's Genesis 37 to 47. I will just say it again. Don't be a whiner. Trust God for the great thing. Unshakable expectancy. God means for you to come to Him like this. With unshakable expectancy. It's not like I know particularly what God's going to do, but I know generally what God's going to do. It's going to be for my good. It's going to be for my conformity. And I love this too. You know, we don't have to see it, right? We don't have to see it. We don't have to see it come to fruition. If God's made the promise, that's good enough for me. I don't have to see it. I don't have to see it to believe it. So if you belong to Jesus, you know when you love Him and you are in the pit, here's my biblical counsel. Wait patiently on God. He is doing something far greater than you can ever begin to imagine or fathom. And I don't, I don't want you to forget this Hebrew scholar. Brad's going to ask me where I got this. I have no idea. I picked it up like I don't know, six or eight years ago. So forgive me, brother. He's going to quiz me on this one, I know. I have diligently expected Yahweh. I love that. So I'm going to close with a quote. It's one of the best quotes I've ever heard a man say. Um, if you want it, email me. I'll send you my notes. I'd love for you to have it. It means a lot to me. I love it. guy's name is David Paulison. He's an American... Uh, counselor and Christian author. He's deceased, I think, in the last few years. I got this quote from John Piper's book, 
Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, which I highly commend, I highly recommend it to you. And David Pallison had one chapter that he contributed. And he says this about the pit. <clears throat> we want a quick fix, right? But God, I love this, but God has set about to give us a long, slow answer. A long, slow answering. I love that. God's answer insists on changing you into a different person. God will surprise you. He will make you stop. You will struggle. He will bring you up short. You will hurt. He will take His time. You will grow up in faith and in love. He will deeply delight you. We, we saw it in the psalm, right? David's singing a new one, a new song. Pallison continues, you will find the process harder than you ever imagined and better. I love this guy. I love this guy. He continues, we need to feel the weight and significance of God. He never disappoints. In parentheses, although he wisely sets about to disappoint your false hopes, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, goodness and mercy follow you. God's voice speaks deep. I love this. Listen. I really would like to make this quote available to you. God's voice speaks deeper than what hurts, brighter than what is dark, more enduring than what was lost, truer than what happened. Your faith grows up. So can we say, can we say, can we say, your will be done, Lord? Can we pray like Jesus? Can we just say, your will be done? Because I know you're going to put a new song in my mouth. Let's pray together.